Hello everybody, uh, and Kiora. In today's session, we will be focusing on the changes in the Austro's Guide to Road Design, parts 4B and 4C. Uh, we have more than 1,300 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all, and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Senior Communications Officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with Albert Wong uh, from Main Roads Western Australia. Albert was the project manager for this project and he will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Ostrots is based in Sydney uh, and today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging and their deep and ongoing connection to the land. A little bit about Austroads, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Programme, which is managed by Michael Newstick. A bit of housekeeping, um, the session will run for about 60 minutes and after the presentations we will have some time to answer your questions. The slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. Um, to view the updated guides, uh, scan the QR code that you can see on the screen or use the provided URL. We have also included the links to the guides in the welcome message. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, um, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. Uh, leaving the session and rejoining via your email registration usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will send you the link to the recording uh, when it's published on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can also find Ostrods in your podcast app. Um, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today, Malcolm Mark and Nola Callahan. Malcolm is a senior technology leader at the Australian Road Research Board. He specializes in road design, road safety and traffic engineering um, with experience uh, within state and local government. Nola Callahan is a principal professional leader at the Australian Road Research Board. He specializes in road design um, with extensive experience in the South Australian Transport Department. Welcome to all the presenters uh, and I will um, hand over to Malcolm. Thanks, Ekaterina. I uh, hope you can see my slides all right. Um, I'm just going to run through uh, an, an introduction and then run through the changes um, and new inclusions to um, part 4B of the Guide to Road Design and then I'll hand over to Noel to run us through um, the changes to part 4C um, and then uh, take us through a summary of today's webinar. So this is the third webinar of a four-part webinar series. So um, welcome back to those who tuned into webinar one and two. 
uh, and welcome to those who are, are new joining us today. Um, so webinar provided an overview of the project um, and an overview of the updates that we made to the guide to road design um, and the design vehicle and turning template guide. Um, it also provided some of the existing fundamentals of the guide to road design. Um, webinar two provided details on uh, key updates to part four um, and 4A um, and how to use these new inclusions. Uh, webinar three today, um, as mentioned, we're going to run through the key updates to 4B and 4C and how to use these new inclusions. And webinar four um, next week will provide an overview of the updates to the design vehicle and turning templates guide. Um, our key audience today will be road designers, um, project managers and traffic management practitioners. Um, and yeah, as mentioned, we'll be providing um, an overview um, and, and insights into the key updates to 4B and 4C. Um, an introduction to the project team. Um, the ARB team uh, was led by Madeline Bekovac and supported by Noel O'Callaghan and myself. Um, the project was managed by Albert Wong from Main Roads, uh, Western Australia. The project team was supported by a project working group, which consisted of Albert uh, Richard Fanning from the Department of Transport and Planning, Victoria, and Bernard Worthington from um, the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the Austro's Road Design Task Force for their input, guidance, and direction throughout the project. Um, Michael Neustig, um, Road Safety and Design Program Manager, Albert, Bernard, uh, Richard, Jade Hogan um, from Transport for New South Wales, Colin Bolden from uh, Department of Infrastructure and Transport South Australia, Sam Hatzfeld-Samus from Department of Infrastructure Planning and Logistics Northern Territory, Stephen Hare from um, Transport Canberra and City Services Directorate, um, Michael Hogan from Blacktown City Council representing uh, the local government Association and James uh, Hughes from Waka Katahi. All right, so let's get into some of the updates to part 4B. Um, we're going to start with a bit of an overview of um, part 4B and then run, run through the updates. So um, what's the purpose of 4B? So 4B um, provides a design procedure um, guidance on best practice for detailed design and specific information relating to the accommodation of cyclists and pedestrians, landscaping, um, road markings and lighting, um, all to do with roundabouts. Um, part 4B focuses on the alignment, shapes um, and dimensions that should be applied in roundabout design to achieve a satisfactory outcome um, and is limited to the design of intersections. Uh, when used in conjunction with other um, parts of uh, AGRD and um, also its guide to traffic management. It provides the information and guidance necessary for a road designer to prepare uh, detailed geometric design drawings that are adequate to facilitate the, the construction of roundabouts. Um, so roundabout safety performance. Um, a a well-designed roundabout is the safest form of intersection control. Um, numerous before and after type studies have shown that in general fewer motor vehicle crashes resulting in um, casualty crashes occur at roundabouts um, compared to intersections containing traffic signals, stop signs or giveaway signs. Um, but unfortunately this, this same safety record does not apply to uh, cyclists and pedestrians. Um, 
the primary reason for the improved safety record for motor vehicles is that the relative speeds of vehicles are considerably lower at a, at a well-designed roundabout than for other types of at-grade intersections. Um, controlling speeds through roundabouts by their design is, is paramount in maximising the safety performance for all road users. Um, adequate sight distance should be provided to enable drivers to easily identify the intersection as a roundabout and comprehend their required path through the, the layout. Um, sight distance um, should also enable um, drivers to observe the movements of other vehicles, cyclists and pedestrians travelling within and on the approaches to the roundabout. And adequate sight distance should also enable drivers to observe an ac acceptable gap in the circulating traffic and enter in a safe manner. The entry geometry should be designed to restrict drivers to a safe speed on entry to the roundabout. It should be noted that although treatments um, can be provided for pedestrians and cyclists at roundabouts, they may not be the most appropriate intersection treatment at locations where there are high levels of um, cycle and pedestrian traffic and alternative treatments um, may need to be considered. Compared to signal controlled intersections, roundabouts can present a significant impediment to pedestrian movement, particularly larger roundabouts with high volumes or high speed high speeds of um, motor vehicles. In such cases, it, it may be necessary, um, or it may, sorry, in such cases, it may be difficult um, for uh, mobility impaired pedestrians, in particular, to find an acceptable gap in traffic to cross um, to cross a roundabout. Um, where pedestrian demand is likely to be significant, the designer um, will need to consider means to accommodate um, pedestrians crossing. Treatments may include the provision of refuges in splitter islands, um, speed control through horizontal and vertical deflection, designated pedestrian crossings, pedestrian operated signals, um, or grade separated crossings. While the challenges of navigating a uh, navigating large arterial roundabouts as a pedestrian are most acute. Conversion of uh, sign-controlled local road intersections to roundabouts can also reduce pedestrian level of service by requiring pedestrians to move from their desire line to use the designating designated crossing um, set back from the roundabout and, and also um, potentially removing any priority that pedestrians may have over um, motorists within the road rules. Um, so design principles, I'm just going to run through at a high level some of the principles that should be applied to achieve a safe and efficient roundabout design. Um, so the roundabout should be clearly visible from the approach um, sight distance at the road operating speed in advance of the roundabout approach. Um, the number of legs should preferably be limited to four. Um, legs should preferably intersect at 90 degrees, especially for multi-lane roundabouts. It's essential that appropriate entry curvature is used to limit the entry speed. Entry speeds should be uh, established after considering the, the types of users, for example, cyclists and pedestrians that are expected to travel through the roundabout. Exits should be designed uh, to enable vehicles to depart efficiently. The periphery of the roundabout must be large enough to accommodate all entries and exits to an appropriate standard without them overlapping. The circulating roadway should be wide enough to accommodate the swept paths of the design vehicles. Entering drivers must be able to see both circulating traffic and potentially conflicting traffic from other approaches early enough to safely enter the roundabout. 
Splitter islands with pedestrian refuges should be provided and road width should be kept to a minimum to minimise crossing distances. Sufficient entry, circulating and exit lanes should be provided to ensure that the roundabout operates at an appropriate level of service. Um, and the target speed for lane sharing should be um, less than 30 kilometres an hour. Um, otherwise, consideration should be given to um, separate facilities for cyclists. So in the previous few slides, we, we did talk quite a bit about um, visibility and, and having sufficient visibility or sight distance, um, having a direct effect on the, on the safety performance of the roundabout. So um, in 4B already, we've, we've got um, visibility criteria. Um, there's three sight distance criteria, um, which must be applied to the combination of vertical and, and horizontal geometry at roundabouts. Um, it's illustrated in figure 3.1 shown up on this slide. Um, these criteria can also affect the positioning of signs, landscaping poles and other roadside furniture. Um, so criteria one and two are both mandatory requirements and, and criteria three is desirable but not mandatory. So criteria one provides adequate approach site distance to ensure drivers are aware of the roundabout. Criteria two relates to a car driver entering a roundabout, having adequate site distance to two potentially conflicting movements within the roundabout, namely a vehicle entering from the approach immediately to the right or a vehicle traveling on the circulating roadway. Criteria three allows a driver approaching a roundabout to see other entering vehicles well before that driver reaches the holding line. Um, within the site triangles um, shown uh, for criteria three uh, and criteria two, it's acceptable to allow momentary sightline obstructions by objects such as poles, signposts and, and narrow tree trunks. <clears throat> so vulnerable road users. Consideration um, should be given to the movement of pedestrians in the planning and design of roundabouts. Roundabouts may be inappropriate where there is considerable pedestrian activity as vehicles are not obliged to give way to pedestrians. Where tr uh, vehicle traffic volumes are high, it would be difficult for pedestrians to cross the road unless pedestrian crossing facilities are provided. Um, a number of studies have shown that roundabouts increase the risk of crashes for cyclists and this needs to be taken into account when considering the adoption of a roundabout treatment at an intersection, um, particularly where cyclists are expected. Um, cyclists are involved, uh, typically involved as circulating road users in a high percentage of entering um, or circulating vehicle crashes and this is likely to relate to entry speeds and motor vehicle drivers scanning behaviour on, on the approaches and, and not citing the cyclists um, already um, circulating the roundabout. Uh, the safe system threshold for crashes involving pedestrians and cyclists is 30 kilometres an hour. <clears throat> So where entry or circulating speeds um, might be above, above this threshold, consideration should be given to providing separate facilities for cyclists to negotiate a roundabout. Okay, so now um, diving into some of the new inclusions. So one of the new inclusions for this edition of 4B is the mini roundabout. Um, so a mini roundabout, it's not a new treatment. Um, currently, 
there was some guidance in part seven um, of guide to road design, but um, through the working groups, it felt that there was a need to provide some guidance in um, part 4B as well. So um, what is a mini roundabout? A mini roundabout is a small roundabout with a solid uh, painted circle or low traversable dome in the middle of the intersection. It can be used as a an alternative uh, where cost and or space restrict the use of a traditional size roundabout, um, typically, um, typically used on, on local roads. The benefits in, uh, and issues relating to a traditional size roundabout also um, typically apply to mini roundabouts. Um, but there's some additional challenges that uh, a mini roundabout can, can face. Um, so as mentioned, mini roundabouts are often implemented in local road locations with limited space, um, which can result in um, horizontal deflection being hard to achieve. Roundabouts with inadequate horizontal deflection can result in higher vehicle entry speeds and consequently higher impact speeds. The inability to achieve deflection angles to those consistent with a typical roundabout um, design has a tendency to increase impact angles to those closer to the higher risk 90 degree impact angle. Um, further to that, um, to enable um, design vehicles um, maneuver, you know, sufficient space for maneuverability, many roundabouts in constrained locations may um, typically only you know, be uh, painted. So you have a painted center island and painted splitter islands rather than raised, um, which would allow um, larger vehicles to track over, over these um, areas. But this uh, reduces the physical restrictions on the approach that would normally slow a driver down on entry. Where um, painted only mini roundabouts tend to be less visible as well um, compared to traditional size roundabouts and adequate signage should be provided to ensure drivers are aware of the intersection. This is particularly important if the mini roundabout is located on a crest. Um, other issues associated um, with uh, the omission of, of raised splitter islands can include difficulty for pedestrians undertaking crossing movements as they are forced to cross in one movement rather than having the option for a stage movement. Um, limited space can lead to reduced sight distance, particularly visibility of pedestrians, um, as well as vehicles on the approach of the roundabout, if not entering at a suitable speed. So um, noting all those challenges, how, how can we improve safety? Um, so additional, we can use additional treatments to supplement um, mini roundabouts to overcome some of those challenges. So for example, vertical deflection um, on the approach to the mini roundabout can be used where there's insufficient horizontal deflection um, and this can assist in slowing vehicles down on the approach um, and as they enter the roundabout. Um, Ver the vertical deflection can also uh, double as a, a raised pedestrian crossing to provide pedestrians with priority. Um, and splitter islands, uh, where provided, can can also um, incorporate pedestrian refuges to allow pedestrians to cross into two movements. Um, another inclusion uh, that we have made as part of this project is um, some 
some commentary around radial roundabouts. So in Australia and New Zealand, roundabouts are generally designed using the, the tangential approach rather than the radial approach that is commonly used throughout Europe. Um, so the geometric design features outlined in part 4B currently are based on tangential roundabout design philosophy. So the figures on the screen, um, they're showing a radial and tangential roundabout. So, so it shows that the entries for the approach legs are aligned towards the centre of a radial roundabout, whereas there is significant deflection to the left for the approach to tangential roundabouts. The primary difference is the radius of entry and exit curves. Radial geometry can help to support priority crossings for cyclists and pedestrians as it requires lower approach and exit speeds. So some of the benefits of radial roundabouts uh, includes slower approach speed and circulation speed, which may change uh, focus of driver attention, possibly improving detection of cyclists. Um, perpendicular entry and exit slow vehicles, uh, perpendicular entry and exits uh, can slow vehicles throughout the circulation, uh, which supports crossing safety. It's less flare on entries and exits, um, which allows more flexibility in um, sighting crossings and low cyclist to car speed differential in the circulation itself. Um, some of the limitations though of radial roundabouts might include reduced capacity due to a slower environment um, and potential challenges uh, to access for larger vehicles due to the tighter geometry. Um, up on the screen here, we've just uh, got an example of a radial roundabout um, on Beulah Road in South Australia. Um, we can see the primary difference uh, is the radius of entry and exit curves um, and that radial geometry supports the priority crossings for cyclists and pedestrians. Um, radial roundabouts can be well suited to local roads with, with a more compact footprint leading to potentially lower implementation cost um, and also noting um, particularly here in Australia um, with you know, some of our larger design vehicles, um, radial roundabouts can, can present a challenge um, when, when trying to accommodate for them. And when we try and uh, incorporate um, the sweat paths of some of these larger vehicles, we sort of end up with um, something that's quite tangential um, in design um, anyways. So, um, the Road Design Task Force advised that uh, existing guidance for tangential roundabouts in Part 4B um, shall remain, but some discussion and commentary on round, uh, radial roundabouts um, should be included, which is what we've done as part of this project. And um, you can find that in section 4.11.4. Uh, now moving on to cyclist treatment. So um, the safety at roundabouts for cyclists and pedestrians remains a source of concern as, as we've touched on earlier. Pedestrians don't have priority um, and this can pose a safety issue at the exit of a roundabout where a motorist is beginning to accelerate away from the intersection. Um, cyclists lack uh, occupant protection 
um, they travel at slower speeds and are smaller in size when compared to occupants of motorised vehicles. Um, at multi-lane roundabouts, uh, roundabouts with high vehicle volumes or roundabouts with high vehicle speeds, specific provision for cyclists is strongly recommended. Um, the treatments specified in section 5.3.6 provide uh, bicycle paths or shared paths adjacent to the roundabout for safer passage. However, they still do not provide priority to pedestrians and cyclists crossing the roundabout. The use of raised crossings on the roundabout legs can change the priority and reduce inconvenience to pedestrians and cyclists negotiating the roundabout and also helps to reduce vehicle speeds. Um, and with, with that target of um, you know, 30 kilometres per hour uh, in mind as the safe system threshold for vulnerable road users. Changing priority may lead to an increase in, in congestion though um, and, and queuing within the circulating lanes. Um, and it might also create issues where a vehicle does not cite a cyclist uh, uh, or pedestrian amount to cross. So the following questions should be asked when considering this type of treatment. Uh, are there high volumes of pedestrians or cy cyclist movements at the roundabout? Does the bicycle path provide stimulation for the alertness of the cyclist? Are the crossing points clear and conspicuous? And are cyclists visible near the crossing point? So at small single lane roundabouts on, on you know, uh, local or collector uh, roads, um, and where the geometry encourages um, low approach speeds, cyclists should be able to safely share the road with general traffic. Um, the use of vertical displacement devices is an option to maintain reduced approach speeds, particularly on, on um, local roads in urban contexts. The vertical displacement devices can also function as raised crossings, as mentioned previously. And an example layout is shown on this slide. If used for the purpose um, of, of providing a pedestrian crossing as well, it should be installed approximately one car length back from the outer edge of the circulating carriageway, which allows a, a, a car to store um, at the holding line without um, obstructing the crossing. Um, and this treatment should aim to uh, moderate vehicle speeds um, to that safe system threshold or lower. On some larger roundabouts, it may be possible to locate the crossing further away from the circulating carriageway and taper the path gradually towards the crossing with minimal impact on desire lines. And this can provide additional space for vehicle queuing or large vehicles. If a crossing is not incorporated into the vertical displacement device, then from a cyclist perspective, road cushions or flat top platforms are preferred to road humps as they reduce discomfort when traveling over the device. Um, where road humps are used, a, a bicycle-only bypass at the road hump may facilitate smoother uh, bicycle travel. This bypass type of treatment provides a short separation from the traffic uh, in the through lane for the cyclist and requires a cyclist to merge into the through lane prior to the roundabout. Um, there's some additional guidance in part seven of the guide to road design um, on raised platforms on approaches to roundabouts. So so check that out. Um, and there's also some guidance in uh, the Guide to Traffic Management Part 8 on the different types of vertical deflection devices.
Um, the last item that I want to cover for the inclusions for part 4B are um, curb ramps to um, off-road paths. So bicycle paths or shared paths uh, provided adjacent to roundabouts have been found have been found to provide a safer passage for inexperienced cyclists and pedestrians. Um, and curb ramps can be used to ensure a smooth transition between an on-road bicycle lane and an off-road path and vice versa. Uh, the curb ramps in this application may be longer and wider than traditional footpath curb ramps to ensure a sudden change in travel speed or direction is not required for the cyclist to negotiate the transition. Figure 5.7 um, up on the screen here varies the typical angle of the curb ramp to the road is 20 to 45 degrees for the down ramp and 35 to 45 degrees for the up ramp. The off-road path connection should be located well in advance of the roundabout so that if the cyclist decides to continue on road, the manoeuvre into the through lane can be completed without disrupting traffic, uh, the traffic flow close to the entry into the roundabout. I'm now going to hand over to Noel, who's going to take us through the rest of the webinar. Thank you, Malcolm, and welcome everybody to this part of the webinar. We're talking about uh, interchanges, which is in part 4C. There was a, as part of this project, there were a few changes that were made to that, to that part. So we'll mainly highlight those changes. So, Part 4C deals with the guidance on the geometric design of interchanges on freeways, uh, motorways and major arterial roads. So it's a it's a specialised intersection, if you like. I mean, the, the other parts of 4, uh, in particular 4 and 4A, deal with um, intersections and part 4B that we've just heard about deals with roundabouts. But interchanges themselves are a, a sort of a different beast. So it was felt that it needed separate guidance. So that's what 4C is all about. So interchanges are um, intersections between freeways and arterial roads, or two freeways, or two major arterial roads. Uh, this guide covers the geometric design of all the elements of an interchange, including uh, the alignment and the cross-section of the freeway uh, close to where the interchange is and the intersecting roads and ramps. Um, it deals with the merge and diverge ramp terminals at the freeway and the ramp terminals at the intersecting road. And that intersecting road could be, could be a major arterial but also could be a minor road or it could be another freeway. So it gives guidance on that. Um, traffic considerations in part 4C 
uh, from an operational perspective, the form of the interchange adopted depends on a number of things. It depends on the functional classification of the roads and the importance of the intersection in the road network, uh, the volume and the and the composition of that traffic, um, whether you need ramp metering, and that would be in particular with with urban freeways, urban motorways, and the desired level of service generally or for a particular movement. So the, the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6, which is titled Intersections, Interchanges and Crossings Management. So that's not, the, not in the road design series, but in the traffic management series. That has an extensive description of the warrants, the forms and the ramp layouts for interchanges. So if you're looking at an interchange and deciding what sort of a, a form that will take, uh, what the warrants are, and what the arrangements of the of the ramps are. Uh, there's an extensive chapter within that guide to traffic management uh, that gives that. So this guide, part 4C, gives detailed geometric descriptions of all the components of the inter of the interchanges. So you you need to refer to both guides if you're looking at uh, interchanges. Uh, so just a, a refreshment of the the terminology used in interchanges. Uh, diagonal ramps. Uh, so that's a just a moment. Uh, that diagram there uh, shows the diagonal ramps uh, and what they what they do. So in in that instance, the freeway is intersecting with a with a, a road, but not a freeway. So that that would be a service in what's called a service interchange, and they're the the, the ramps there. In the in the middle diagram, the one that says directional ramps, that's a system interchange. In other words, there's a freeway intersecting a freeway. So those are called directional ramps. So that that right turn. It does just that. It connects from one freeway to another. Uh, you can have outer connector ramps, which are shown like that. Uh, Semi-directional ramps, where in that instance, um, in order to turn right, and, and, and again, this is a, a system interchange, so it's, it's a freeway intersecting with a freeway. Uh, in order to turn right, for example, you're turning left initially and then turning right to get back onto the other freeway. So that's uh, why it's called a semi-directional. And then you can have the complete flip where you do a do a loop and there's a loop ramp there for that. Um, so yeah, the next slide is is the addition to uh, to part 4C, which came out of this project. So um, there's some guidance to say that with ramps, uh, you need to make sure that the, the ramp's clear. So generally, if the ramps are longer than 600 metres or, the, or there's significant traffic, generally a ramp, if it's only single lane coming off, it will expand to two lanes and then, and then intersect with the road. But for direct ramps, semi-direct ramps, and outer connectors. Now, these these are ramps which 
essentially are on a system interchange. In other words, there's no there's no hold up either end of the ramp. You can get off the ramp from the freeway without without stopping, and you can get <coughs> off the freeway onto the ramp, and then you can get off off the ramp onto the next freeway without having to stop. So if if the ramps are direct, semi-direct, and outer connector, uh, even if it's longer than 600 metres, uh, you, um, you don't need to widen the ramp to two lanes. That's what that, this section is saying, and that's a that's a new a, a new variation for this guide. Uh, and there's a few provisos there. The truck operating speeds will need to be similar. Uh, uh, one lane is is sufficient to give the level of service. Uh, the additional lane, if provided, would be dropped again prior to the downstream entry node. So if that's going to happen, well, it's not much point in putting it in. So omitting the additional lane um, avoids the need to merge on the ramp, and that actually by by having two lanes there, you could actually have a negative impact on traffic capacity because you've introduced a merge within the ramp. So that that's why we've now suggested for those ramps, you don't need to, to widen to two lanes with those provisos. So there's a there's a table in in the guide that gives the lamp uh, the ramp lane width. And again, this is uh, based on that provider for those previous types of ramps where you don't need to do those. It uh, gives uh, some examples of lane widths, uh, depending on how many lanes you've got, and gives dimensions of the shoulders left and right. And generally, uh, the left shoulder is a, is a proper shoulder, uh, two metres, and the right shoulder is a one metre. Um, but in uh, this instance, uh, where you've got a, a right-hand curve and that right-hand curve has restricted sight distance and, re restri and therefore restricted stopping sight distance, you can swap the, the widened shoulder over to the right-hand side rather than on the left-hand side. So uh, normal shoulders widths is shown in that diagram there on the left where you've got a two metre on the left and a one metre on the right. You've got an instance where the the sight distance is restricted because of that too. What you can do is flip the shoulders over so that the shoulder width, the two metre shoulder width is on the right hand side and the one metre is on the left hand side. So you move it, flip it over in advance of the curve. Once, once you've gone round the curve and you've got that additional sight distance, then you go back to having the two metre on the left hand side and the one metre on the right. So that that's an addition to this guide. Um, there's a reference to uh, ramps near tunnels. Um, the primary object within tunnels is to keep the, the traffic flowing with as little disturbance, uh, little uh, disturbance as in change of speed or merging, as little of that as possible. So um, 
the advice is that the entry ramps uh, need uh, are undesirable within a tunnel or close to the tunnel portal, uh, and they may, if you've got them close, uh, they may create a risk to tunnel traffic. So the preference, the advice is that the the end of the merge table should finish no less than 500 metres prior to the tunnel portal. It's a fair distance, but it's it's uh, in order to keep that that tunnel flow um, moving um, fluently. Um, there is an, another guide, another series of guides that deals with tunnels, uh, guide to road tunnels, and in part two, there's some guidance on entry ramps in tunnels in that. Um, Dealing with entry ramps, there's been a, a a bit of a change here. Now these diagrams are a bit a bit um, uh, detailed for this slide, but what it's showing is the the length of parallel lane. Now I'll I'll go forward to an this extra slide you don't have, but I'll just show it now for uh, for clarity. The length of parallel section, that's that section there. This is what this uh, table is dealing with. So the previous advice is that the, the length of that parallel section is based on four seconds of travel time. Um, but what we're, what we're now saying is that if it, for high speed throughways, that is those over 80 kilometres an hour, you should up that to seven seconds rather than four and generally uh, with a maximum of 200 metres. So that, those, uh, that parallel lane is uh, shown not, not, not very well in those diagrams. So that, that diagram there is in Appendix C in the, in the guide. It's taken from what was formerly known as Vic Roads and uh, that explains it a bit better, I think. Uh, to do exit ramps, uh, traffic leaving freeway needs to be managed to reduce the likelihood of exiting traffic interfering with the mainline freeway traffic flow. So, um, yeah, generally, if you have uh, a, a service interchange where the ramp comes off of the freeway, it'll it'll intersect with another road, and that the that intersection uh, can have have an effect on the queuing on the ramp. So the, the advice is that additional lanes on the exit ramp may be needed so that you can discharge more traffic. So the idea is to keep the exiting traffic away from the mainline freeway. Uh, <clears throat> additional lanes for through and turning traffic on the surface road are the traffic signals and if and if the intersection doesn't have traffic signals, well, introducing traffic signals could increase that efficiency. Uh, you can increase the ramp length, increase the number of lanes, and provide a longer marked exit lane, or allow exiting vehicles to queue in the emergency stopping lane. That is that lane there. You could allow vehicles to travel in that. And again, with tunnels, um, Exit ramps are a are a 
a problem or can be a problem if they're too close to the tunnel. So exit ramps close to both the entry and the exit from the tunnel need to be positioned to minimise the interference within the tunnel. So again, we want to keep the flow in the tunnel moving consistently, um, preferably all at the same speed uh, with no interruption, no disturbances. And so need to keep those exit ramps up away from that or have consideration for how that's going to be. Uh, another um, detail that's been added here, and again, these are quite detailed um, diagrams showing a single lane exit um, <clears throat> and with a preferred treatment and a minimum treatment and the details here of what what we've changed. Um, so that figure has been updated. I'll just go forward to another slide which you haven't got in your in your set. But so this is the old guidance, and there was a there was a point here that was called the 3.5 meter point, which is 3.5 from there, uh, which gave a point which we couldn't see the point in. So and and again, you've got a four meter ride ramp. So that that has now been clarified to just show that show that detail there without the 3.5 meter um, detail. So that applies to those those situations there. That that detail uh, detail C refers to the to that point there. Um, another. Another change has been the site distance. Uh, so the, for people coming on at, a, at an entry ramp, it's necessary for both those drivers to be able to see each other. Now, previously we had said that that site distance needed to be eye to eye. What we're saying now is that you just need to be eye to roof. So eye, eye to the top of the car. So that, but that's in both both directions, but yeah, just a, a slight slight change in that sight distance needs to be eye to roof, not eye to eye. Am I looking? Um, also, we've introduced within this section the grade separated intersection. So it's it's not not called an interchange. The, the series of diagrams here show how you move from a grade-separated intersection through to a, a full interchange. So um, essentially, it's a bridge over a road. So the, that road there is is not a freeway; it's just a two-lane, two-way road. And this is how you you still cater for all movements, but they're not they're not at end interchange standard uh, you've got you've got uh, deceleration lanes and you've got uh, stopping points as you intersect them the main road so the first diagram is how that intersects with um, a two-lane two-way road then if you if you upgrade that to a, a, a dual carriageway it shows how those ramps can be positioned and then if you go to a freeway it shows how you can um, how you can transition to that so that's additional guidance in there those two diagrams I'll just show you another slide that shows a bit more detail of uh, some examples in Queensland 
And again, so as you can see, it's a two-lane, two-way road. You've got a, a ramp over the top and there's connections to that. Uh, the other example uh, shows how those connections are provided via roundabouts off the road. So they're, they're called uh, grade-separated um, intersections rather than interchanges. Although they, you could argue that they are, they are interchanges as such, but they don't provide the same level of um, merging, diverging that you would on a freeway interchange. Uh, just in summary of what we've been through now, so Malcolm is taking you through part 4B, which dealt with roundabouts, introduced the mini roundabout and the radial roundabout, and talked about cyclist treatment uh, with curb ramps, uh, vertical displacement and priority for cyclists. And we've just been through part 4C to deal with interchanges, uh, talking about the ramp cross sections and the alternative shoulder widths on right-hand turns. Uh, what uh, details have been changed for entry ramps and length of parallel lanes and exit ramps, some guidance where you've got uh, tunnels, uh, the, the site distance, the mutual visibility and, and grade-separated intersections. So that's, that's the end of this part. So to access the guide, you can just use the QR code or you can use the, the link shown there to access the guide. Um, I, will, I will now hand over to Albert, who is going to handle some questions. Hang on a minute. Thank you, Noel. Let us just jump straight into the questions that I've got in front of me. The first question, would cyclists use raised pet crossings on runabout legs if they are not on a path network? Yeah, good question. Um, so probably a couple of things to this question. Um, so firstly would be, it might come down to the cyclists themselves, whether they um, you know, feel confident in uh, you know, sharing the lane with vehicles as they negotiate the roundabout itself. Um, and if not, they may um, prefer to use the um, crossings on the approach legs of the roundabout to um, navigate the roundabout itself. Um, and then if that is the case, then there needs to be some connectivity there from um, the road or the, or, or the bike lanes to uh, the path network to ensure that um, the cyclist can uh, get off, off the road uh, onto the path and then use the crossings and then back onto the road um, as they uh, are on the exit leg of the roundabout um, and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, it would both come down to yeah, whether the cyclist um, feels the need to, to use it and then providing the connectivity for them to be able to use it. Thank you. 
what studies are being done by Austroads for the safety of pedestrians and cyclists at runabouts? Studies to date seem to concentrate on vehicle demands and movements. Is there any data that has captured the safety of pedestrians and cyclists at runabouts? Yeah, so as part of this project, um, one of the early tasks was a, a literature review um, and that in, incorporated reviewing, uh, I want to say 12, 12 or 14 Ostro's research reports um, and there were a couple on um, safety at roundabouts. In particular, there was there was one titled um, Cyclist Safety at Roundabouts, um, which has fed into a lot of um, the updates that we've made as part of this project. In terms of current Ostro's projects, though, we might have to take that question on notice um, yeah. and, and see what's um, sort of happening currently in that space. Yep. Thank you. So the next question, what type of, what curb types would you recommend for splitter islands and runabout? Would you recommend change if pedestrians would be crossing at splitter islands? Um, in terms of curb type, it's typically Semi-mountable curb there, no? Yeah, yeah medium, um, medium type yeah, curbing. Medium, medium type curbing. Yeah. Um, what was the second part of that question, Albert? So, uh, would you would you recommend change if pedestrian will be crossing as splitter islands? So, um, change to the so curb type, I guess. Yep. Yeah, it depends if you've got a, a, a cut through for the on the splitter island for the pedestrians as. Malcolm showed in the example. Um, mm. I, yeah, right. I I would I I think some jurisdictions do use uh, barrier curbing on roundabouts, but I would prefer the semi-mountable. And again, I mean you've got to cater for the larger vehicles as well. So um, the the, the semi-mountable curbing is is generally the preferred type of curbing. Yep. All right. Thank you. Um, this is regarding slide page 21. Slide 21. So what about using marked pet crossing for raised threshold on approach to runabout? Would you allow gap for car to stop at whole line? Any major issues for this? Yes, I think that um, is in reference to potentially the figure that we showed on the next slide, uh, not on the next slide, a few slides after that, um, where we would typically, if if the raised um, uh, raised crossings are going to be incorporated on the approaches, we typically recommend um at least having a car's length between the hold line and the crossing um such that the vehicle is uh the vehicle waiting at the hold line is not um you know half stored on the crossing 
um, which yeah, could obstruct. If we could look at slide 26, you could talk to that. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Thanks, Noel. Yeah. 26, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah so this, this, um, this diagram here could also sort of uh, cover the mini roundabout um, uh, as well in terms of using the, the raised platforms um, on approach. Um, and we can see here they are set back at a distance. So um, yeah, the, the, the guide sort of talks about having a minimum um, you know, car length from the platform to the holding line. Um, and, and so that's so that the car storing at the holding line um, is not obstructing the uh, crossing and um, also cars, uh, vehicles leaving um, the roundabout, uh, giving way to pedestrians or cyclists on the crossings are um, not obstructing the circulating carriageway. Yes. Um, next question is regarding slide 19 to 21 and is regarding the speed environment. Is there a recommended speed environment in which mini runabouts should or should not be used? Um, so in the guide, we haven't sort of stipulated um, specific speeds which they should or shouldn't be used, but um, acknowledging that they are typically used in um, constrained locations um, and typically used on local roads with um, lower, lower, lower operating speeds already. Um, so a couple of the things we spoke about um, with the challenges of mini roundabouts um, being that sometimes it can be hard to have the horizontal deflection to slow vehicles down and, and sometimes you know they might only be painted because we're trying to get larger vehicles through the roundabouts. Um, so we we do note that um, these should typically be used at roads with um, you know lower operating speeds where we're um, you know not we've got some additional challenges we're working with. Mm. Um, this is next question is regarding slide twenty. So mini runabouts with high volumes have historical had issues with insufficient gaps and motorists taking unsafe gaps. Is there any guidance on safety versus traffic volumes? Yeah, so um, some of the guidance on, on those aspects aren't necessarily um, in the Guide to Road Design, but can be found in the Guide to Traffic Management um, when we're looking at selecting our um, treatments. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd suggest to yeah, refer to the Guide to Traffic Management uh, part yep. six. Six, yeah. Yep. Thank you. Um, slide 17. Could you provide any commentary or advice on removing restricting criterion three side distance in order to further reduce travel speeds as drivers on approach to a runabout will have to slow further to observe traffic 
from? Other yeah, approaches? Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Very good question. And um, it's sort of a, a newish concept in that, um, you know, restricting site distance um, might be able to force vehicles to slow down as, as you know, they're not aware of what might be coming. Um, I guess when we're looking at um, the criterion three site distance triangle, um, the, argue, the argument might be that, um, you know, that vehicle uh, on approach to the roundabout can see that there's, you know, nothing coming and they might not then um, slow down at all. So yeah, definitely can get the point of, um, of the question. Um, currently, so we don't have any uh, guidance in part 4B on that specific topic. Um, but if I do recall, um, part seven has some guidance on that as a new and emerging treatment um, in terms of, uh, yeah, restricting site distance at the intersections to um, slow vehicles down. Um, but I think at this stage, it's still a sort of jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis in terms of um, using that as a as a as a treatment. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd suggest looking at part seven for some more guidance on that. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a, a bit uh, controversial that restricting the site distance, as Mal Malcolm said in part seven, there is that restriction where you actually put up a screen to to restrict that site distance. Um, I personally am not, not in favour of that, but uh, it, it needs to take into account what the speeds would be anyway. So uh, so it's not just seeing that criteria three, it's how, how fast can you go in, then into the roundabout and a combination of that. So I, yeah, I'd, I don't think we're going to remove criteria three, which is what the question was from the guidance, but yeah, there is that, that proviso that says it's an optional um, provision and yeah, each roundabout should be treasured on its merits as far as speed goes. All right, uh, let's just do one last question due to time. Um, has con consideration been given to including specifics regarding diverging diamond interchanges in Part 4C now that they are implemented in Australia? Um, I, I, and again, I think we've um, we've included that in Part 7, which is um, where some of the new new stuff is is being um, put without without actually graduating it to the to the main guides. So I I guess uh, eventually that that stuff will graduate to to this part uh, once that once uh, the usage of them becomes more acceptable to everyone. All right. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Um, that's it from from the Q and A. And thank you for all attending. And hope to see you at the next webinar. And I now hand this back to you, Ekaterina. Thank you.
Thanks so much, Albert, and thanks, Noel and Malcolm, for your presentations, and thanks, everybody, for your questions. We have very many questions uh, that we didn't have enough time to answer. We will respond to all of them in writing, and we'll send you the copy after the session. Um, as you can see on the screen, uh, we have four webinars coming up, uh, including the last uh, fourth uh, webinar in this series um, on the update to um, to the design vehicles and training path templates guide. So if you haven't registered yet, just uh, visit our website for more information and to register. Um, and as we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take a few minutes to send us your feedback. Um, let us know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Once again, today's session has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time.